Hello everyone and welcome to What's Killing My Kale Season 3. This is a podcast put out by the University of Minnesota Extension and co-hosted by me, Natalie Hoytel, an Extension educator working with local foods and vegetable production, and Annie Claude, an Extension educator working with fruit production. This is a podcast all about growing fruits and vegetables in Minnesota and some of the factors that prevent us from being able to do that well. That could be insect pressure, disease problems, nutrient management. In this season, we're starting with a special mini-series about climate change. We're going to interview climatologist Kenny Blumenfeld to give us the 10,000-foot view of what's been happening and what we can expect into the future. And then in the next three episodes, we talk to farmers from three different farms about how they're seeing climate change play out on their farms and strategies that they're using to adapt. So before we jump into this episode with Kenny, I just want to take a moment to talk about our decision to put out this mini-series right now. So we're releasing this episode as we're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, and this is a time of immense uncertainty for everyone, and especially for farmers. Climate change is also a topic that comes with a lot of uncertainty and anxiety for a lot of people. And so we really thought about whether this was a good time to be introducing this content. But we decided to do it for two reasons. So for one, most farmers are in your greenhouses right now, you're getting seedlings started, and we figured this is a time where a podcast might be appropriate just because it's nice to listen to something while you do that work. Similarly, if you're a fruit grower, you might be out pruning. But two, and more importantly, Even though climate change can be a scary topic, these interviews are hopeful, they are full of adaptation strategies, they're insightful, and so in a time of uncertainty, it's important to talk about that uncertainty. And I think that these interviews and the farmers that we talked to did a really good job of providing insight and hope and ideas for adapting. And so for those reasons, we decided to put this out right now. And so with that, here is the interview with Kenny. My name is Kenny Blumenfeld. I am a climatologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources in the State Climatology Office. And my, I guess my sort of official title is Senior Climatologist. And what that really means is that um, I'm a lot older than I used to be. (laughs) And that... (laughs) Um, there's three climatologists working full-time in the office and we each have kind of similar but different titles and it really just helps us kind of keep our different responsibilities clean so we have a state climatologist and he represents our state to the kind of national association of state climatologists and he takes care of a lot of our uh, you know our system development he's a really good computer programmer we also have uh, an assistant state climatologist who runs a lot of our, he runs our observation networks and has a lot of contact with our citizen observers. And then as senior climatologist, I'm really, you know, my, about half of my role is to help Minnesotans get up to date and up to speed on what's happening with Minnesota's climate. So if you think of the, the kind of thorny topic of climate change, that all ends up on my plate. I do a lot of work with uh, communities, with other state agencies, with uh, ag, with different industries, helping anyone who's interested uh, just kind of understand what the all the 
stuff we're hearing on the news and what everything we read about, what it really means in terms of the climate for Minnesota. And we really get specific about what's happening in Minnesota to Minnesota's climate, and then what do the models tell us we can expect here, uh, given, you know, everything that's also true about scientific uncertainty. So in a nutshell, I'm responsible for helping Minnesotans understand uh, what's happening with their climate. Okay, great. Um, so when I think about climate change and when I talk to vegetable growers and fruit growers about climate change, the two big things that we're seeing seem to be this wetter weather, especially in the spring when farmers are trying to get into their fields and then warmer winters, um, which can affect um, especially fruit production. Um, but from your perspective, like, are those the two big issues that you're seeing as well? Or are there other things that we're not thinking about? What's kind of like the 10,000 foot view of the big changes that we've seen over the last maybe 100 years or so? Well, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned those two trends because that's really the main symptom that the main symptoms that we're seeing here. And, and you know, it either means that I've done my job well or that the, the message is getting out or that you've independently come to the same conclusion. But either way, it's, it's, it's really good to know because there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of question and a lot of confusion about what's really happening here. But so at the higher level, it, definitely, we are seeing, uh, and it's not every single year, but we are seeing in general, more precipitation. Uh, and what that really means is we have, we can look at the past and we can look at how precipitation tended to be distributed in the past. And you'd have, you know, you'd have your wet years and you'd have your dry years. And with all of that variability, we still could come up with kind of average precipitation. And now, uh, towards, you know, beginning really the last couple decades of the 20th century, and really accelerating in the first two decades of the 21st century, we have seen, even with those, you know, the wet years and the dry years, we have seen a tendency for the average precipitation to come way up in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, in some parts of the state, the average precipitation has increased by several inches. So it's a really big jump. So we've indeed gotten wetter. And you could look at this through a number of different benchmarks, and, and we can get into the details if you're interested. The, yeah. other big, the other big change that we've seen is that Minnesota's gotten warmer. And, you know, if you just think of what does that mean, all it really means is you, using the same basic understanding, we compare what's been happening recently to what we had observed historically, and we see that the average annual temperature has gone up. It's increased by, you know, since we started taking pretty good records, it's increased by an average of about three degrees Fahrenheit in Minnesota. Now, when we pull apart all the seasons and really drill into it, you're absolutely right. What we're seeing is that the winters are getting warmer much faster than summers. There's a little bit of warming in the summer, but the winter warming over over uh, the recent period is somewhere between six and 12 times faster than the summertime warming. So it's a much faster warming in the winter. And when we take it apart even more, what we see is that the winter warming is really driven not by warmer days, 
not by having you know higher high temperatures during winter, but by a real loss of the cold winter nights. So that the coldest nights or the coldest mornings of the year, uh, they tend to be a lot less cold, or in other words, a bit warmer than they used to be. And the severity of so the severity of cold has really lessened, and then also the frequency of certain cold weather benchmarks have also decreased a lot. And that's really it's not what's driving all of our warming, but that particular behavior of cold weather has a, has a really large uh, fingerprint on the on our climate uh, on our climate signals that that warming that we discussed. Okay, so can we? Talk about each of those individually, just for a little more detail. So, like starting yeah, with sure. more water. Um, yeah. So the the more yeah, water. It seems like that's all. Like it seems like it's all happening in the spring, and that might just be that's when we're really thinking about it because farmers are trying to get into their fields. Then, is there like a what is kind of the distribution of rain throughout the year? Is it consistently more all the time, or certain times only? Yeah, it's a really good question. We have, uh, you know, one thing that it's important to keep in mind, and I'm certainly guilty of this also, we all have kind of short memories. And so mm -hmm. whatever's most recent is also typically what's most familiar. And we will often confuse whatever's most familiar for, oh, this must be the trend. And so, you know, we had a very wet late winter and spring in 2019. And so that is the freshest memory that we all have. And we had a pretty good uh, wet spring in 2018, too. So, uh, and but if we look at the data and we look at the way that precipitation is changing around Minnesota, uh, what's interesting is it's, it's all the seasons are getting wetter. We're seeing mm -hmm. increases in precipitation uh, in the wintertime in the springtime, in the summertime, in the fall. Now, there are some colleagues who, who work at the University of Minnesota, uh, Dr. Peter Snyder and uh, his former postdoc um, had done had looked at some of Minnesota's hydroclimate response to the changing climate, uh, and they did that in the last decade. And they actually did find that even though even though the kind of growing season has gotten wetter, that there was a tendency for the distribution of precipitation in the growing season to favor the early uh, rather than the late part of the season. Now, there's some good news there for drought control, because if, if that finding continues to kind of bear out as we go through the years and, and we keep observing that, that would tend to mean, you know, we're going to start wet but end a little bit dry, which is a lot better then starting with a gigantic precipitation deficit, and then right. uh, and then trying to make up for that, you know, after uh, you know after critical parts of the growing season have already passed. So uh, there's some silver lining there, but we're really, I think, from from the state climatology office standpoint, what we've seen in the data suggests that precipitation is showing increases in each part of the year. But that when you look really closely, you can find a little bit of difference between the early and the late parts of the growing season. But uh, I think, you know, in general, we see all the seasons getting wetter. And, you know, before 2019, it's just it's worth pointing out that that particular problem, 
with absolutely inundated soils and no ability to get into the fields uh, was not something that we had been seeing a rapid increase in. So in other parts of this decade, we had come out of winter in what we call a snow drought. So in the, in the year 2011-12, that uh, winter, we had a snow drought. And we also had snow drought-like conditions in the 2014-15 uh, winter, 2015-16 winter, and also the 2016-17 winters. And what that meant was we didn't have the normal amount of snow on the land during winter, and we did not have that large flush of water that you usually get during a snow melt event. And so what ended up happening instead was uh, we had less than normal spring runoff, we had lower than normal spring stream levels, and we had slightly drier than normal soil conditions, you know, going into the very early parts of the growing season. So it's not to say that, that it's, you know, that it's entirely wrong that we've gotten uh, wetter springs because we certainly have, but there's just some of the nuances and it's hard to keep in mind that our climate almost never does the exact same thing, you know, year yeah. after year. We go from high to low, which means we go from wet to dry. Maybe we'll string two highs and two lows together or it'll be a three and a one, but we expect lots of ups and downs and lots of bouncing in our climate. And we indeed uh, have seen that even in the last decade. So the general statistics have pointed towards wetter conditions in every season. But when you, again, when you look really closely, you see, but it's not every season of every year, right? It's just that's sort of the overall picture is we're getting wetter, but we've still had moments where we've been pretty dry. And then we've had moments where we've been very, very wet. And I guess the other thing I would point out is that, you know, Minnesota is certainly one state, but... Uh, when you think of the climate and you think of the you think of the different growing regions of the state in that way it's it's really far more than one entity so the really wet trends that we've seen across Minnesota over the last decade have been much more pronounced in southern and eastern Minnesota than in northwestern Minnesota and now in 2000 in 2019 everyone really caught up and it was kind of wet everywhere and that and that and northwest minnesota erased some precipitation deficits that had been accumulating but it's kind of important to remember that with something like precipitation we are we are really seeing uh you can see a lot of variation even inside of what you think of as a wet year so you could see in a wet year one part of the state being excessively wet and maybe another part of the state just being kind of normal or maybe slightly wetter than normal. But when you blur your eyes and, and put it all together, it's just generally been wetter. And I guess the other piece is one of the things punctuating those wetter conditions is uh, more what we think of as heavy precipitation. So more frequent days where you get an inch of precipitation or more and that's also distributed entirely across the calendar. So it's not just rain, but it's also snow. We've seen increases in a lot of our heavy snowfall metrics, uh, even as winters have warmed. Okay. That I mean, I don't know if reassuring is the right word, but I think sometimes when it, yeah, when you look at the last two years and it's been so wet, it kind of feels like, oh no, is this like, is this going to be this way forever? And so. Yeah, it's it's probably helpful for farmers who, you know, I know a lot of the growers last year, wanted, it, it was really hard, right? And yeah. the only thing that we can, we don't, 
we have some sense of what the future is going to look like. And it's not entirely good news, but the good news that we can deliver on is that our climate will always go through high and low variations. And because of that, it's basically a climatological law. I mean, this is what happens when you're in the middle of a continent and, and you're in the, and you're right between the equator and the North pole and, you know, a wind from the South brings you warm air, moist air that's coming from the Gulf of Mexico, but a wind from the North brings you air coming off of the tundra. It just guarantees that you're going to have a lot of variations depending on what the prevailing weather pattern is. So we're very confident that what we saw in 2019 is not what every year for the rest of, you know, for the rest of our lives is going to look like. We're going to, we're going to come down from that. Now we don't know if we'll come down this year. We, but that was a record-breaking year. So just based on statistics and the way these things work, we would expect to come down at least a little bit from where we were in 2019. And we're already seeing signs of that this year. I mean, the first three months of the year have not been dry, or have not been that wet in Minnesota. We've actually have sort of minor precipitation deficits in northern and western Minnesota. And we're, you know, we have a lot of water in our streams and uh, but most of the snow is off the land and we're, when we look at what's been happening we're not in anything like that weather pattern that we were in in february and march of 2019 so meteorologically we're in a better situation we can't promise how long that will continue but we're not we're not off to that huge head start that we were at by this time last year and uh you know we all know that the weather can catch up very quickly with one or two big rainfalls but uh, so far, we're we're not in the we're not in that position that we were in last year, and we're kind of hoping that continues. Yeah. So one final question I wanted to ask about precipitation was, um, I guess I've seen some predictions saying like we're pretty sure we're going to see more water. Um, we're pretty sure we're going to see these heavier rainfall events, and then there's some certainty about or maybe I shouldn't say certainty, there's a higher likelihood of seeing um, longer droughts or periods between rain as well. Sure. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's sort of confusing. And it's it. believe me, even scientists have a hard time standing in front of audiences saying, we're going to get wetter, but we're also going to have more uh, prolonged dry periods. And, and, you know, the the way to kind of think of this is you have to look back at, at what's actually driving a lot of these changes. And you, there's just no getting around the fact that the global temperatures are increasing. They are. And nobody even disputes that. And you also then can't argue with the thermodynamic fact that as temperatures increase, so does the rate of evaporation off of water. And that's really important because rising global temperatures basically by physical law put more water from the oceans into the atmosphere. And with that additional water in the atmosphere, then whenever you have a passing weather system in the areas that are kind of prone to those passing weather systems, it's going to have not every single time, but the average passing weather system will have access to a little more moisture, which it could then use to produce precipitation, than it would have had, say, historically. And so 
So this is one of the reasons that the models are pretty confident that in an area like Minnesota, which is near you know, some of the paths of those important mid-continental storm systems that produce precipitation, that we would see increases in annual precipitation and also increases in the metrics of kind of heavy precipitation as we go into the future. At the same time, though, and it's really the same model suggests that, but there's going to be a change, and there's already some indication that we're, we're starting to see it, a change in the pace of those weather systems so that there, there would tend to be maybe fewer days where you're actually producing precipitation. Not, not necessarily a dramatic cut in them, but maybe shaving off a few to several percent uh, so a, a few to several percent reduction in the number of days where you have precipitation, but you're getting more precipitation on those days and it's enough to kind of drive that average up. But with fewer days with precipitation, that increases the chance that you have slightly longer uh, periods of consecutive dry days. Now, I have to say, when we look at the, the most recent climate models, this is not what we think of as a smoking gun for Minnesota. It's much more subtle in Minnesota than it is in some of the neighboring states, especially well to our south and to the southwest, where there's a much stronger signal in the models suggesting these dry spells getting longer and maybe even a lot longer uh, in the in the years and decades ahead. But for Minnesota, there's enough of an indication for us to say, well, it looks like the, a typical dry spell in Minnesota in the future would be one to two days longer. And when you add in the fact that by that time, we do expect to see increases in, in extreme heat, and we really haven't seen those yet in Minnesota for what it's worth, but that in the future, we would expect to see them, you know, and I'm talking 20, 30, 40 years out, then if you add more intense heat on top of a longer dry spell, you can kind of see how we'd be worried about things like, you know, maybe flash drought. And also if you're coming out of a really dry early growing season, or if you're coming out of a really dry winter, then maybe just plain old drought being exacerbated by, you know, higher temperatures and, and longer dry spells. But again, for Minnesota, it's not a smoking gun. We have a much stronger signal that tilts us towards getting more precipitation. But again, we have to remember that's not every year. So even if we continue on the upward ramp or that sort of escalator that we've been on for the last several decades, even if we continue on that, it's not really an escalator. It's, it's more like a, a drive through the mountains where you eventually end up higher than you started. And so you go up and you go down. And so we do expect even as we get wetter, periods of dry conditions and even drought in Minnesota. So it's sort of like saying we, we have to be ready. We have to be ready for everything, mm -hmm. even though the writing's on the wall that we're getting wetter and we should expect to keep getting wetter. It would be really foolish for anyone in the, especially anyone in the growing community, to assume that well now we're drought proof because we're absolutely not. That would be pretty short sighted of all of us to just assume that you know, in light of the last few really wet seasons that therefore droughts out of the picture because we're still very susceptible to water shortages and it's still very much going to be part of our climate, maybe just at a slightly different frequency, slightly lower frequency. Yeah. Right. That's very helpful. Thank you. Good. Good.
Um, so I guess then just to talk a little bit about temperature. Um, sure. So as you've been saying, like we, we are seeing generally higher temperatures around the world, but mostly we're seeing these, these really low temperatures in the winter kind of creeping higher. Um, I guess I'm curious to hear just kind of about like why that is. Is it changes in currents? Is it, I guess, what is kind of the mechanism for why we're seeing it play out in that way? Sure. So it is true that, that global temperatures have risen and that they've mostly risen similar to what I described before, which is, you know, winter warming faster than summer and then <clears throat> winter nights essentially warming faster than winter days and kind of the coldest winter nights warming fastest of all. That That is for the most part true around the world. We are especially susceptible into to it here in Minnesota because we have long winters. And the reason, this is an area where, where I'd say maybe scientists haven't done a great job of explaining the observations and the basis for the observations to the public. So I'll do my best here. But uh, basically, this is actually goes back to the, the very greenhouse gases that are helping the world to get warmer, causing the world to get warmer. So I, I know that when you know, people hear about greenhouse gases and climate change, it, it very quickly gets political. But the facts are that the, the there are additional gases in the atmosphere that are the result of human activity, you know, combustion of fossil fuels and transportation and power generation and all of that. And those, uh, those gases play a very specific role in the atmosphere. And one of the things that they don't do and this is really important. They do not magnify or intensify the sunlight during the day in any way, shape, or form. <clears throat> sunlight basically passes through these gases and then makes it down to the earth, and then the earth gets warmer. And then what happens is as the sun goes down and the earth begins to cool off, that heat that had been absorbed by the earth begins to escape. And this, this produces a much longer wavelength. That escaping heat has a much longer wavelength than the very short wavelengths that are coming in directly from the sun. And those greenhouse gases, although they can't absorb the very short wavelengths that come in from sunlight, they actually very efficiently absorb those long wavelengths from that generally absorbed heat uh, that you find at the surface of the Earth. And so they hold on to some of that heat that's escaping it would normally kind of go back out into space and they prevent some of that heat from escaping and they therefore keep the temperature a little bit higher the same way that uh you know putting a blanket on prevents body heat from escaping into the room around you and keeps you a little bit warmer too so they play a very similar role but that role is most active when the heat from the earth is is basically attempting to escape and that is during winter and at night and especially during winter nights so you see a little bit of that effect in the summertime and you, you'd see it any season but it's especially pronounced at night and it's most pronounced during those long winter nights so regions that have long winters tend to see the most warming and in fact in minnesota you can you can just follow it 
we have much more winter warming in northern Minnesota than in southern Minnesota. And if we extend throughout the continent, you see that central and northern Canada are warming much faster than northern Minnesota. As you go from south to north, this warming, and especially the winter warming, really increases. So that's that's one piece of it, is that the role of the greenhouse gases is to trap heat that's already been received by the Earth. And so it has a much stronger effect on absorbing that heat that's already been, that's already been received at the surface of the Earth. Um, and that's just a stronger effect during the winter than at the summer. Now, the other thing that's happening with winter temperatures, though, is kind of a, a feedback or a secondary effect of everything else I just described. In Minnesota, we get our coldest air from the north. You could think of Canada and Siberia and northern Alaska as sort of our cold weather reservoirs. And these areas are warming even faster than we are. So they're producing less cold air. And so then when the wind blows from the north, aside from the effects that I already described, there's just less of it to go around. And so that's a, one complication. And another is with warmer winters, you tend to melt more snow during the wintertime, especially in those latitudes that normally are covered by snow. And of course, snow reflects sunlight and prevents the earth from absorbing most of that heat. Whereas, you know, bare land can absorb a much larger proportion of that incoming sunlight and heat. Uh, and so when you remove snow from the landscape because of warmer winters over, you know, certain areas, you also kind of fundamentally change the heat balance and tilt it towards warmer conditions. So three basic factors that I just described. One is the greenhouse gases literally absorb heat coming off of the earth and they do it much more effectively during winter and at night, which is why we see more winter warming across the globe and especially in places like Minnesota and northern latitudes. Two, that this whole process has eroded the availability of cold air in what you might think of as cold air reservoirs so that when the wind blows from cold regions, it's less cold. And then three, uh, it's also fundamentally changed in some areas, not everywhere, but it's begun to change the, the cover, you know, the amount of snow cover, which also alters the ability of the uh, land to either reflect or absorb incoming sunlight. And that changes the heat balance in a, in a manner that tends to, as you melt snow, um, it tends to promote warmer conditions. So those are kind of the three main factors. Uh, and that, that sort of just explains why we're so far seeing kind of winter and winter nights sort of leading the way in, in, the, in the warming here in not just Minnesota, but throughout much of the world. Yeah, that's a helpful explanation. Um, so one question related then. Um, so when we were talking about rainfall, you talked about, you know, we're seeing these overall trends, but every year there's so much variability uh, that it's really hard to say, like, in this year, this is what's going to happen. And so related to temperature, we're seeing it's getting warmer generally. We're seeing these kind of USDA hardiness zones shifting. Um, and we, we often hear people saying like, oh, this could actually be an opportunity for northern climates. We can grow things we couldn't grow before. Um, but obviously we probably will still have every once in a while these really cold nights, um, at least 
for for a few years. I don't know how long. Um, do you have any insight on that conversation? Yeah, I mean, one of the areas where I think growers and gardeners have kind of gotten burned uh, recently is that, it, it, again, it's not every year by any stretch of the imagination, but it's many years. We still have, you might have a really early spring in terms of the onset of frost-free or freeze-free conditions. Uh, so you get multiple days on end where the even the lowest temperature of the day remains above freezing. And there have been years where that's very advanced in the calendar. Uh, you know, in some cases coming in February and coming in March. And then you get a bunch of excited gardeners or farmers, uh, or in some cases you just have annuals that are doing this anyway, or perennials that are doing this anyway, that they start, you, you see people getting out in the dirt and growing things and trying to plant and grow things. And then you get a killer frost or a killing freeze that comes in pretty much at the same time it always has. So you've had six weeks of, of kind of early spring, but then you still get uh, a well-timed killing frost. And that's been devastating to some, you know, to some of the orchards. And it's been, we know in Michigan in 2012, the cherry crop was hit, the tart cherry crop was hit really, really hard by that exact condition. They, this, one of the terms I'm sure farmers are familiar with is the, the sort of false spring. Uh, and that that's a concern because uh, sure, the statistics are pointing towards more and more warm conditions kind of sneaking their way earlier and earlier into the calendar. But they still, that doesn't mean that cold is all the way gone. We live in a highly variable climate. And you could have six warm weeks. I mean, March of 2012 was otherworldly. I don't think it, there was nothing like it on record anywhere in the upper Midwest. We had, um, in some cases, we had temperatures above 80, in some cases, multiple times during the month of March. You know, think of today when we're recording. I mean, it's not even above freezing in most of Minnesota. So just imagine the same time in 2012, we had temperatures above 80 degrees. It was almost 80 degrees at International Falls. So very, very warm. But, you know, all that you need is one good cold front bringing the air in from the north. And even with all of the warming that's been going on in the north, I mean, it's still cold. It's just not as cold as it used to be. And so if you got winds bringing in air from the Canadian tundra, and uh, it doesn't matter if it had been 75 degrees for three weeks in a row, you're going to see the temperatures start crashing. And so the inherent variability that's just built into our climate is not going away. And that does pose a special challenge because we are seeing a lot of the metrics of the growing season favoring earlier advancement, you know, um, later postponement. So we're seeing the growing season beginning to stretch across the calendar, but we also have not seen substantial changes in that sort of first or that sort of final date of spring freeze or that first date of fall freeze. Those haven't really changed all that much. It's just the statistics of the days that are way above freezing have changed. And that does pose a special challenge for people who, who are growing things. And it, and it certainly doesn't mean uh, 
you know, our trends towards warmer conditions do not mean that we'll never get cold again. It just means that a typical winter now and a typical winter in the future will be warmer than a typical winter from the past. And that, you know, on average, the coldest day of the year is getting warmer. But it in no way uh, guarantees that we won't have temperatures occasionally that even, you know, that approach record low levels. So it's a hard thing to keep in mind. The frequency of of warm weather is certainly increasing, especially in the winter, but it has there. It will never entirely rub out or destroy, uh, you know, cold weather altogether. It's a it's a much more subtle change, so we have to be careful. I hope that I hope that helps. I know it's kind of complicated. No, I think it does help a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess to kind of recap all of that, when we think about impacts to growers, <laughs> we're seeing more water at all times of the year, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every year is going to be like 2019 where we can't get into the fields. Right. Um, We're we're potentially seeing towards, especially the end of the summer, some longer dry periods, but not anything like we're seeing in the Southwest part of the country. We're seeing warmer winters, but that doesn't mean that we should all be planting, I don't know, planting tropical fruits. Yeah, maybe hold off on that, you know, maybe hold off on that for now, right? Yeah. Yeah, until, until it's clear that we're in a tropical growing zone, we should probably hold off on, you know, some of the riskier uh, some of the riskier crops. And it's, you know, even as you were saying it, it's, it's a reminder how short our memories are because it was only 2018 where we started seeing farmers really complain about very wet conditions at the end of the growing season. And for whatever reason, several years this past decade had these massive rainfalls in September and even, even in late September, or they would have, and in some cases they would, it was an and or they would have uh, a prolonged period where, you know, for, five out of seven days you'd get measurable precipitation and this for whatever reason was happened to come right around the fall equinox frequently and that's definitely uh shaping our i think our perceptions a bit but the fact is when you know again when you back up and look at the data that had been analyzed by the university scientists um yeah there had been a tendency for they sort of referred to it as the spigot shutting off a little bit. So you'd have this really wet conditions up until about the middle of summer and then much drier conditions predominantly, you know, July into August and parts of September. But remember that's, we're just speaking generally here and that's just what the scientific analysis of the data shows, but we still uh, had, you know, incredibly wet, fall, you know, late growing season conditions, uh, at least a few times this past decade. So when we talk about these trends, I think it's important for everyone to remember that we're always going to be on some kind of a variation from the trend line. We might be above it and we might be below it. And if you are only planning on the trend line, 
then you're going to be vulnerable to being affected adversely by either type of variation. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to keep in mind that even as we get wetter or even as that growing season, you know, if it continues to show a tendency towards being wet earlier and not as wet later, we're still going to see variations off of that behavior too. Yeah. It's a lot to keep in mind, I know. (laughs) And I I think that um, if listeners are tuning into the other um, interviews with farmers, some of the strategies that we talk about, um, soil health, like building up organic matter in soil, there are a lot of strategies that actually apply to both situations. They, they help with flooding and they also help with drought. And so it is a lot to plan for, but I think in general, there are a couple of strategies that if you're investing in these types of, if you're really investing in soil health, for example, and cover crops, um, it's going to benefit you in both situations. So yeah, I, I agree. I, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I was at the Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association meeting um, two years ago, and what I heard were uh, a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me with a lot of really good ideas for being kind of innovative and creative as they cope with the realities of our climate. And, you know, if you think of it, this is just how how Minnesota's climate was always variable, right? It always went from high to low. It's just that now we're sort of getting more of it. And it just means, uh, you know, if, if our climate was already up at 10, well, then we have to figure out a way to deal with it now that the dial's up at 11. Mm. All right. Um, are there ways that people can stay connected to things that your team is putting out. Um, you mentioned you have your own podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the podcast that I do is not part of my actual job. It's just for fun. And that's called um, that's called Way Over Our Heads. And it's mostly, that's just mostly like a weather forecasting and discussion podcast where we occasionally get into climate. I would say that the, more importantly, the state of Minnesota is pretty involved, uh, is heavily involved in the changing climate. Now, obviously, with current events, there's a little bit of a pause in how much information is being pushed out right now. But um, there are a couple resources I think listeners should be aware of. One is that um, the USDA does have what's called a climate hub, and it's in Ames, Iowa, and it has uh, a lot, it's produced a decent amount of resources uh, in terms of just basic climate coping and adaptation strategies. And some of them are specific to fruit and vegetable growers. So it's not, I mean, I know when we think of agriculture, a lot of people do think of the big cash crop, the big, you know, the corn and soybeans, essentially. But there, this hub has paid a decent amount of attention to the fruit and vegetable growers and the smaller crop. So I think it's maybe worth looking into that. That's the um, USDA Climate Hub. And again, this is the one that covers the Midwest region and is in Ames, Iowa. So that's that's one good resource. And another resource that people should know about, I can't, I can't promise exactly what this resource is going to be producing, but uh, University of Minnesota Extension does have a climate change expert who is joining uh a joint appointment between extension and the soil water and climate department. And she will be, she will be joining in July and she's a fantastic communicator and is very strategic and is going to be working 
uh, with extension and with uh, agricultural producers of all sorts to give them the best resources available on adapting to the changing climate. So we have a kind of a variety of things available now. It's what you can find through the USDA Climate Hub. You can always contact the Minnesota State Climatology Office. Um, and again, we're, we're part of the DNR, but our email address is climate at umn.edu. Um, and we can give you as much information as we have. And then you can also, uh, you know, use your extension resources and especially uh, be prepared to get some good information from the forthcoming hire. Yeah, great. Um, well, thank you so much. This was really insightful. I think growers will learn a lot from it. So I appreciate you taking the time to break some of these things down for us. Yeah, I, I, hope, uh, I hope it was useful for your listeners. All right, so that's it for our interview with Kenny, but I hope you'll tune in to the next couple episodes where we interview farmers to learn about how they're seeing these changes play out in their farms and talk about adaptation strategies. If you have a few minutes to write a review, we would very much appreciate that as well. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, or you're always welcome to reach out to us with suggestions, ideas for new episodes, um, or questions. So thank you all for listening. <laughs>